started and get into week two of our Delivered series. Really excited about this. Have a uh, fun unpacking this psalm that for me is um, just, you know, every so often you run across the scripture and it speaks to you and you read it again and it speaks louder and louder. And this is one of those for me that uh, just continues to kind of unpack itself and unravel in ways that uh, I never quite imagined. We want you to be able to experience that. I want you to love this psalm like I love this psalm. And so we have a Psalm 116 devotional. It is available to you. It is free on Amazon today. So if you go to amazon.com and you put uh, my name or you put Psalm 116 devotional in the little search box, you get a free ebook copy. If you want to um, have paper, um, I cannot make that free, but you are welcome to have paper if you like it. We don't want anybody to miss it and we don't want anybody to pay for it. And so if you want to get a free ebook or go to Facebook or Twitter, um, every single morning at 6 a.m., and there will be the, that day's devotional out there for you. And so what our hope is, is that uh, church is not a Sunday experience of learning, but church is an invitation to an everyday experience of God's presence with God's people. And so that's what we're aiming for with this. And today, uh, we move on to verse 5 through 7. So we're going to be in Psalm 116, verse 5 through 7. We'll put the scripture up on the screen. You can read it along with me there. It says, The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. So there's two things we're going to capture in this really short passage of Scripture. The first is we're going to gather this recognition of protection that that is on display. And the second thing we're going to understand is what does it mean to return to rest? What is this, this idea, return to rest? So David, the psalmist, is speaking these words out. This is a song. This is a poem. This is his heart's cry put on the page for all to read. And so what we're going to see today is he's speaking of this protection. What does it mean? Why is it important? And then really that phrase we're going to come to, return to your rest, my soul. I think that is fascinating. So we're going to find our way there. What we're ultimately going to learn is that true rest is not in finding our way out of trouble, but finding our way into the saving grace of Jesus. True rest is not in finding our way out of trouble. True rest is not about getting out of something. It's about getting into something. And so we're going to get there. First, the recognition of uh, protection. I think David is offering us a perspective here. There's an offer of perspective being made, and and he does so in verse 6 when he says, the Lord protects the unwary. And so what does this word unwary mean? I, I don't think I've ever used that word in a normal conversation in my life. Unwary, depending on what your uh, version of the Bible says, kind of drills down into simple, naive, or easily deceived. So David is saying the Lord protects the simple, the naive, and the easily deceived. I I think simple is probably the best word that, that we can grab for that. But there's two types of simple, right? Like if you call the plumber and the plumber comes and looks at your problem and says, oh, this will be simple. Well, that simple is good, right? When you call the plumber and he looks at your problem and he looks at you and says, you're simple, aren't you? Not as good. And that's the idea. It's that second sort of simple that David is using here. It's this sort of kind of naive, aren't you? You're, you're sort of easily deceived, aren't you? You're not the sharpest tool in the shed, are you? David is referring to himself and the Lord's grace to him. And yet, as we read it, it is a, re- a reference to David, but by extension to all of us. David is kind of calling us simple as we include ourselves in his heart's cry. David was a king, shepherd boy, 
smallest of the brothers. If you know his story, you know that he had risen to great prominence and power. David was regal and magisterial. David was a man after God's own heart. He's God's favored king. And he's calling himself simple, easily deceived. To which we go, well, how, do, how does he get there? Like, how does somebody with that much prestige, how does somebody with that much polish look down at his own life and call himself simple and easily deceived? To which we won't read the passage, but I'll remind you about the uh, little episode with Bathsheba. If you've been in church a long time, preachers love to preach on Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba, and this whole story. If you have never heard this story, then let me give you a brief rundown. David, in the spring, is supposed to be out at war leading his troops. He's supposed to be leading his troops into battle. For some reason, David uh, allowed laziness to take over, and he chose not to go out to lead his troops. And instead, um, he stays home, wakes up late one morning, goes out on his rooftop, surveys his kingdom, and sees what but a woman bathing. Makes his first mistake in laziness. Then seeing her, he makes a second mistake, which is um, this pseudo-innocent inquiry. This text says in 2 Samuel 11, it says, David inquires about her. Which, you know, he, I'm sure he had no ulterior motive. He just inquired about her. Who, who is this person? And they tell David that this is uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah, like normal human beings in that time, was off in battle where David should have been. David thinks about this for a moment. Makes his next mistake, which is to send for her. So he sends for Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And then one thing leads to another. And David being king, David sleeps with her. Which is a problem in and of itself, but it's compounded by the fact that she comes back and says, you know what, I'm pregnant. The Bible gets interesting, doesn't it? David realizes that this could be a problem. That he's now impregnated the wife of another man who's off at war where he should have been. And he's got to figure out how to untie this knot. So David gets pretty clever here, the simple, unwary David that we have. David calls Uriah home from battle which is kind of a cool deal for Uriah because he's no longer in danger. He gets brought home. He's dining in the king's palace. David sends him home and says, look, you've been fighting. Go to your wife. Go to your home. Take a break. And what he's trying to do is get Uriah to go ahead and do what men coming home from war do. Therefore, when she's found to be pregnant, everyone will assume it's Uriah's and they'll just move on with life. And David's out of trouble. Uriah will not have any of this because he's an honorable man. And he says, not while my brothers are out at war. I won't sleep with my wife. And so Uriah refuses. He refuses pleasure while his uh, friends are out experiencing pain. David says, man, that is honorable. Let me see if I can do you one better. So David gets him drunk the next day, tries again to get Uriah to go home to his wife. Uriah then sleeps on a mat rather than going and sleeping with his wife. And so David is really kind of out of options. And so continuing on with his genius plan, David then sends Uriah back out to battle, but informs the general that when Uriah is on the front line to pull everyone else back, exposing Uriah, And basically, it's a hit, right? Uriah is killed in battle, and David has basically ordered it. So we went from laziness, to lust, to infidelity, to murder, pretty quick. Bathsheba mourns. David takes her as his wife. David tries to make the whole thing better that way. God is displeased that God strikes down the sun. And so David has experienced kind of the fullness of what it means to be simple unwary, naive, and easily deceived. David's deception was self-deception. But if we look at our own lives, I don't know that we're a whole lot different than that. Most of our own deception is not from other sources. Most of our deception is self-deception. And so when David says, I'm simple, 
and then we include ourselves in David's poetry and David's song and David's heart's cry, then we can look at David and go, you know what? I'm like that guy. I don't like to admit it, but I'm like that guy. He said he was brought low. When I was brought low, he saved me. What he's saying is in the grip of my own bumbling sin, God saved me. In the grip of my own idiocy that led me to this place that I can't even imagine how I got there, but I got there, God was still ready to save me. As an aside, this is kind of a a, a wink at repentance. David looks backwards and he realizes that he had made some mistakes and so he's turned from them. So as we talk about repentance, it's funny because I'll be finishing my master's in seminary in December, and so there's this ongoing debate. It doesn't matter what class you're in, that there's always seminarians debating about repentance. Is repentance necessary for salvation is always the question. And there's a, there's a whole camp of people that say it absolutely is, and there's another camp that says, no, it's not. Now, we would say that the Bible says it's not necessary for, repent, uh, for salvation, right? That it's by God's gift of faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. You don't need to repent to be saved. But it's necessary in salvation, So repentance is not necessary for salvation. Otherwise, that's your good works, and that's what got you saved. It's necessary in salvation. So once you're saved, you then get your eyes opened up, and everything clears up, and you go, wait a minute, now I see. And i got to turn from some of this stuff. This is an experience that is an ongoing experience for each of us in so many different ways. One of the things uh, we did recently, Steph and I took a day with our kids in Detroit. And um, people said, why are you going to go to Detroit? I'm like, there's a lot in Detroit. Detroit's experience in a renaissance is beautiful, it's lovely, safe. We stayed in a really tiny part of the city, but we, we just spent a day. We did a day trip. We had a ton of fun. Went downtown and we went to the um, African American History Museum. And I take my five-year-old and my eight-year-old. And, and I, it, I, get, I get raised eyebrows from people when we do stuff like this at times. Like, why would you expose, I mean, it's not, it's not like, a, like a fun, hands-on kid's place. It's actually sort of a heartbreaking, terrifying, did that really happen kind of place. But when you take a a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, that's repentance. Because when your eyes are open to something being unjust, then our responsibility is to then fight against that injustice forever. The same thing is true in your personal sin. When your eyes are open to something being unjust, something being a sin, then it's your responsibility, like we said last week, to consistently root that out of your life. And so societally, I look at my children, privileged little white girls, and I say, how can I get my kids in line to continually fight against this thing that societally is an injustice? Well, I'm going to take them to the museum. I'm going to let them walk through a slave ship. And this, like, guttural, visceral, when your eight-year-old looks at you with tears in her eyes and says, Daddy, is this real? And you say, it was, but it doesn't have to be. And she goes, oh. And my five-year-old at night, I'm tucking her in that night for bed, and I said, you know, what'd you think of today? And she goes, I'm glad it's not like that anymore. And I'm like, yes, but that's on us. Well, that's not a social justice movement. That's not an activist movement. That's not a, a progressive or a liberal. or a, It's none of those things. That's repentance being lived out in real time. To recognize that when God opens our eyes to injustice, it's our job to stand up against it and fight against it regularly. To expose ourselves to new ways of thinking so that we might practice righteousness and justice as God would declare. So is repentance necessary for salvation? Nope. Is it necessary in salvation? Absolutely. So David is brought low. David is humbled. 
clearly he recognizes God's rescue and his ongoing protection in his life. And so I think this is important. If you think you're a pretty good person and God must be pretty lucky to have you on his side, that's pride. This is subtle but real, and this is maybe the modern diagnosis for us. We always come back to pride versus humility. If you think God needs you to protect him, there might be some pride there. If you think God, uh, you need God to protect you, then we're closer to being on the right track. And I say this because we're in, a, in a, this, this divided society that we feel like we have to fight on God's behalf. Like we feel like it's our job to establish God's honor. And our activism is in defense of God. And there's no shame in fighting the good fight. There's no shame in standing up for what is right and what we believe. None of those things are shameful. Those are good things. But our culture needs less people defending Christ and more people displaying Christ. And we get that just one degree wrong and we end up as defenders of God who needs no defense rather than displays of Christ. I was driving down the street in San Antonio years ago a major street, um, six lanes, turn lane in the middle. And um, it goes kind of like from the far, rich north side all the way into downtown. And I'm driving down the street. I'm going to the, the best taqueria in the city, which is, it's like a pilgrimage to go and find the right homemade tortillas is the greatest thing in the world. Now I miss them. So I'm driving down the street, this major thoroughfare. I'm going 45 miles an hour. And um, the strangest thing that's ever happened to me in my life, I'm, I'm driving in a car and a plastic baby doll hits my windshield you know what you don't know what it is in the moment you, what is what in the world is going on only to come to find out that there is a group of uh, christian protesters on the side of the road in front of the abortion clinic and one of them has a fishing pole with a baby doll hooked on the end and he's putting it out in traffic and reeling it in i don't know why he's doing this but he got my attention and so this plastic baby doll hits my windshield. I look over at their signs, and their signs are all um, pretty defensive, pretty negative, but they're, they're facing the street so that anybody who might be walking by, going by on the bus, those people are going to have to encounter kind of this vitriol that was rightly intended. These are people who are there to defend life, who are there because they believe that um, the, the, the child in the womb of these mothers going into this clinic deserves life, that God has brought it there for a purpose, and to take it is wrong. Well, we would agree with them. And yet my heart breaks as I'm looking at these people who've gotten up early on a Saturday morning that are out there doing uh, their best to bring truth somewhere, throwing babies all over the, the six-lane road on fishing poles, which is still really weird. And my heart breaks because behind them, there's a 19-year-old girl born in generational poverty that's sneaking in the back door of the clinic. And her expression, or her experience of the expression of Christianity is, I know what Christianity hates, but how much more would it be if Christianity loved? And so people were defending the right to life, but not displaying it to the life in front of them. And it doesn't make what they were doing poorly intentioned or, or even poorly executed. Maybe that, maybe that had some incredible impact, and God can use anything. And yet what I knew in that moment was that we missed it as a, as a people, as a church, because what they needed was something like the Bowling Green Pregnancy Center, which says, come on in. It's your choice. We just want to give you options. That connects you to open homes, that if you want to keep 
uh, this baby, but you can't raise the baby. We'll find a family that will. That I was in my office this week with a young woman named Tiffany who said she's starting a home uh, child care center just for uh, women at BGSU, young women who, who want to have their baby but can't imagine finishing their degree and having a child at the same time, so they're going to provide free Christian child care. And she says, we're going to open this place. I'm going to get it done. And so we'll work in, conge- in connection with the pregnancy center. So if someone comes in the pregnancy center and the last hurdle for them is, I wish I could have the baby. I believe you that it's real. I believe you that it's alive, but I just can't imagine finishing my degree, keeping my life, a life on track, and having a baby. She said, I'm going to stand there. I'm going to go, guess what? You can, and we'll take care of your kid for free. That's the display of sacrificial love that we're aiming for. And so what we need is less defense and more display. We've got a couple coaches in the room. I don't know if they would agree, but you've heard it said the best defense is a good offense, right? Steph Curry is not an all-world defensive player. But he changes the game when he's in it. I don't know anything about the NFL. I don't, I don't really pay attention. But I have a theory that if, if I got a vote uh, for the NFL MVP, I would vote for Tom Brady. Because I guarantee you the guys that play defense for the Patriots have a lot easier job because Tom Brady's their quarterback. That he actually makes their defense better because of the way he does offense. It's the same true for us. There are people here that are just wired to be defenders. You are wired to defend God. And what you need is the rest of us to go and play offense like you've never believed so that your defense is then heard clearly and it's matched with a display of love and grace. So God protects us in our simplicity. We stumble, he collects us, he dusts us off. And in that, in that collection of these simple people, then we can rest. So we return to rest. David says, return to rest, O my soul. When I was little, which is dangerously close to saying back in my day, but I'm not that old yet. Playgrounds could mess you up, okay? If you, if you grew up like prior to this generation, I think, like even 15 years ago if you were a kid, playgrounds, would, they were just designed to mess you up. There weren't these nice plush playing. So you played on asphalt or rocks or even better, you played on asphalt that was crumbling into rocks. Today they have these synthetic padded surfaces that are like, designer look they even look good but they're it's like memory foam or something you know i think that's that tempurpedic playground <laughs> smooth edges soft lines and people complain about parents today i actually think it would be a, if we had a time machine i think what i would waste it on is i would send today's helicopter parents into the 80s playgrounds and just see what happened <laughs> like no one cared in the 80s at all about anything the early 80s, no one cared about it. There was one rule for kids in the 80s, which was um, don't get into the van, right? That was the only rule. And everybody remembers the stranger, and whatever you do, just don't get into the van. Because nothing good ever came out of going into the van. If you put today's parents with 80s playgrounds, there would be mass hysteria. Why? Well, we've gotten to a place where there's no more danger in the playground. Like the worst that can happen is a kid falls into the memory foam mattress and gets their sleep number tallied or something, and everybody goes home happy. (laughs) Parents are, uh, if you go to the playground now, you'll see it's this whole different thing. Um, Instead of just ignoring kids, parents pretend to be watching them, but everybody's on their phone, right? And this is the shame of being a a parent of young children, is you know exactly what this is, because you're like, I'm going to be active and engaged. I'm going to push them on the swing. And the first time they're both kind of more than 15 feet away, you're like, I'm totally bored. I'm going to check my email. 
That's what we do. Parents sit on their phones, and parents, frankly, are uh, checked out, relaxed. I would say at rest. Why? Because their kids are protected. A kid on a playground today is a protected child, and so the parent, as a result of this protection, is able to rest. David says, return to your rest, O my soul. The Lord has been good to you. As a result of the protection that David has experienced, David then instructs his soul to return to rest, to recognize this protection, and in doing so, his soul should then be able to naturally return to rest. How many of us could use some soul rest from time to time? David finds it. His recipe is this. He asks three questions, or answers three questions, rather. He says, who is God? What has God done? And what does that mean for me? His answers to these questions, he says, God is gracious, righteous, and compassionate. That's who God is. He answers the what has God done question by saying God protects me, rescued me, saved me. What does that mean for me? David says, I take a deep breath. I return to rest because the Lord has been good to me. See, unfortunately, our solution to finding rest is always addition. There's always another thing, another vacation, another uh, solution, an additional self-help idea. Someone told me a few weeks ago that they were, quote, adding minimalism to their life. (laughs) I don't think it works like that. Uh, Our human idea is to find the trouble and then find our way out. That's always our plan. Find the trouble and then find our way out of the trouble. And I'll repeat what I said to start, which is that true rest is not in finding our way out of trouble, but finding our way into the saving grace of Jesus. Rest is a way of looking at the world. If we are people that are already victorious, if we truly believe that our victory is in Jesus, that our salvation, our security is in Christ, and we are already victorious, then we cannot lose. If we cannot lose, then we cannot stress because our stress is in the danger that we might lose what we have accumulated that matters. We might lose the things that we've, we've earned. We might lose the things that, uh, and if those things are secured, if victory is already won, then what's the stress in the game? We're then free to just play. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The scripture is saying that there is something inside of you that knows the rest of eternity, that knows the peace of God's presence. There is something hardwired inside each of us that knows the presence of God, longs for the presence of God, and is attempting on some level to get back there. So when our plan to find rest is what it looks like for most of us, that's where it becomes flawed. Our plan for return, returning to rest looks like this. It's me waking up in the morning, having a hearty breakfast, kissing my wife, and saying, Honey, I'm going out to look for home. Won't be back until I find it. And then I circle the globe, I explore an adventure, all in pursuit of home. When, as the obvious illustration would tell you, home was where I started. I didn't have to go anywhere. It was already there. And yet I was on this quest to add, find, explore, and I need to find home. Home is not out there. Home is here. Restoration and rest is the same. Rest is not out there. 
It's not a product we can buy. It's not a, a tonic we can consume. It's not something we can add to our lives that'll actually finally calm our hearts and our souls and bring us into peace. It doesn't exist out there. Rest is here. God said, is it been woven into your soul to know? The eternity has been woven into your heart that the threads of eternity are in you. That's how you recognize them when you do. And that's what you long for when you find yourself drowning in the sea of stress and anxiety. Rest is where you started from. This is why David can say, return to rest, O my soul. Rest is not a place you find, it's a place you return to. We spend our whole lives in pursuit of rest to find just the right formula when rest is where we started from. And so in this world, it's important to recognize that God has been good to us, as David says. And the rest, rest is then our basis. Rest is our foundation. Rest is hidden in our hearts. Therefore, rest is found in returning to God. Anxiety is found in returning to anything less. We have to ask the question when we run to something, when we turn to something, when we look to something to satisfy us, we have to ask the question, can it take care of me? Will it last? And what if something goes wrong? Because the psalm says, slow down. Remember what God has done. Remember when you were brought low. And then remember the rescue and return to rest. The psalm says that God has been good to you. God has taken care of you. God provides perfect protection for you. God knew you before he formed you. God saved you before you knew you needed it. God left the Holy Spirit to guide you. God is inviting you every single day. And his invitation is this. Find yourself in me. Find safety in my covering. And in the perfect protection I provide, return, O my soul, to rest. Let's pray. Lord, we are a a flailing people at times. God, I pray that in uh, this moment that you would identify those things within us, that you would, uh, would shine a light within each heart here on what it is that we are seeking rest from, that where it is that uh, we're searching out for something that only comes from you. Father, I pray that you would expose uh, anything less than you as being less than you, uh, that the delusion or the illusion that we are under would fall away and that we would recognize that uh, the true hope and beauty of this life is found in you. And then, and then only then, Father, would we then experience the abundance and the beauty of all the additional stuff that with uh, souls at rest with hearts at peace, a good meal would be something we would find deep joy in and find a way to give you glory for. That our great job or our material provision or health or whatever it is, God, that we're relying on, we would recognize those things as extra, as bonus. And Father, when we recognize that, then we would recognize that all these things come from your hand that it is your protection and your provision that allows us to know what it means to be truly at peace. So Father, we remember. Collectively, we remember being brought low. We remember when you saved us. 
when you've called us to something better, higher, deeper. God, we commit together to seeking that daily. To trying to find rest in our souls, not out there, but with you. So Father, guide us to that place of wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're